0: Welcome to episode 123 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Hi, friend. Happy June, Leslie. Happy June to you. Uh, did you have a nice Memorial Day? Um,
1: I think I saw my parents, which was which was nice because, you know, not enough seeing of, of loved ones. So I saw my parents, saw my brother and sister-in-law. It was nice. How about you?
0: We ventured out um, of our bubble for the first time and went to a friend's barbecue. Uh, everyone was vaccinated and we hadn't seen them in over a year and outside of Zoom. And it was absolutely lovely.
1: Here's hoping that many listeners have been able to do the same.
0: Yes. And, you know, that brings us into this week's show. You know, it's been a kind of a light week with the holiday starting off and, well, a- a- up fronts behind us. So it's been a little slow. So this week we're going to do something a little different. Uh, We've got not one, but two showrunner interviews, plus an executive. And this week, if you had to pick a theme, it's going to be about international streaming. But yeah, definitely some, some fun stuff coming up.
1: Absolutely. Just in case any of the listeners looked at the running time of this podcast said, but nothing happened this week. Why is the podcast so long? It's because we were having so much fun thinking of a theme for this podcast that we ended up doing a trio of interviews, all from Europe, despite the fact that neither of us got to go to Europe.
0: Yeah, well, we have the showrunner from Lupin, the big breakout from Netflix, and then we have a fresh new voice who created the Peacock International series We Are Lady Parts, which is definitely fun and worth checking out if you haven't heard about it yet. So... And then to bring it all together, which we're actually going to lead off with the segment um, in our global uh, push this week, we have an executive from Netflix International joining us to talk about the streamer's global expansion into local language originals. So lots of fun stuff going on.
1: That means we should probably get to headlines so that we can get to the interviews.
0: Take it away. Leading off,
1: Showtime has renewed City on a Hill for a third season. And Apple has booked a return trip to the Mosquito Coast, and maybe they'll actually make it to the Mosquito Coast this time around.
0: Over at Peacock, the streamer has picked up eight episodes of The Resort from the writer of Hulu hit Palm Springs and Mr. Robot creator Sam Ismail.
1: In casting news, HBO's Game of Thrones breakout Sophie Turner has joined the cast of The Staircase on HBO Max. In the Heights star and Vita grad Melissa Barrera will top line Breathe, the Netflix survival drama from Blindspot creator Martin Garrow, and Miles Teller has replaced Army Hammer in The Offer at Paramount+. Plus.
0: Wrapping up headlines this week, we've got some premiere dates uh, that just came in. Why the Last Man finally has a debut date. It'll launch September 13th on FX on Hulu. Also coming in September is American Crime Story Impeachment, which is set for September 7th on FX. And What We Do in the Shadows, the new season returns September 2nd on FX. So some long-awaited new shows premiering and one critical favorite.
1: That is definitely stuff to look forward to and reason to hope that the apocalypse doesn't come in August. And it's always good to have reasons to root against the apocalypse.
0: (laughs) I'm Honestly, it it feels like I've been writing about Why the Last Man my entire reporting career. And I'm so excited that it actually has a premiere date. I really just desperately want to see that pilot.
1: This is definitely one where until the screeners actually hit my inbox, I'm going to remain skeptical. But they, they do keep suggesting it's getting closer and closer and closer. So only three months now for the world to flake out.
0: Yeah. So it was a movie. It was a TV show. It had a different showrunner. It had a a different lead actor. The backstory on this thing is crazy. So lots to look forward to coming up. And uh, hopefully everyone gets to see more of their loved ones, too. So anyway, enough about that. Let's dive into this week's top five.
1: Number one. Less than a month after its premiere, Netflix has canceled Critical Dud. You might have heard my dudding it. Jupiter's legacy, and that does not mean that they are necessarily done with this world, and they are certainly not necessarily done with creator Mark Millar. So, Leslie, break down what they actually did do this week and why it's maybe not as definitive as some cancellations sound like they are.
0: I mean, make no mistake, Jupiter's legacy is canceled. They uh, Netflix released the cast from their contracts. Uh, those Those options were coming up. And you know, look, this news came a month at less than a month, I should say, after the show premiered. To I'll, I'll be polite and say lackluster reviews, but you certainly heard Dan's uh, review on our show a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago there. But yes, yeah, so while the Jupiter's Legacy show is technically canceled, Netflix and and Millar have said that they are readying a live-action version of Super Crooks, which is already a short-form anime series at Netflix. They're going to do this as a live-action scripted series, and it's basically going to be a spinoff of a canceled show, Jupiter's Legacy. So they're basically trying to stay in this world. I, I would venture a guess that that they're trying to amortize some of the costs of, of the show that didn't work, keep some of the sets Build out this world. They are so heavily invested in Mark Millar's company. Don't forget they Netflix acquired his company in 2017 for north of $30 million. So, you know, it's all part of this bigger global effort at Netflix, just like every other company is searching for, which we talk about on, on this, on our show every single week. It feels like everyone wants franchises and everyone wants content that appeals to a global audience. But from where I sit, The Miller World acquisition feels like a bust so far. And Dan, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, yes, Super Crooks is going to is going to be a spinoff that's in in development. They've picked it up to series, but who knows how many years it's going to be until we see that Um, they tried tried last year to do the magic order as a live action series. Uh, Sources say uh, Netflix executives saw the creative on that and then looked at the price tag of what they were already investing in that and then scrapped it. They, Mark Millar's team re envisioned it. It's now back in development at Netflix, I'm guessing, with better scripts and probably a little bit smaller price tag. Uh, that show was, of course, Getting the Axe was the victim of the pandemic and probably a regime change at Netflix. But yeah, this is the idea of turning a canceled a show that was canceled after a month into a franchise and building out a world from a show that has a whopping 38% score on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. I don't know. That doesn't necessarily spell out success to me, Dan, but you be the judge. Well,
1: it's funny because when I reviewed the series and reviewed it very negatively and reviewed it very negatively because it was very bad, um, a lot of people who had read the comic responded to me either on Twitter or, if I actually know them, IRL, as we say, by saying stuff like, there's a really good premise to this show. It's just not the show that they decided to make. And so they explained what was essentially the premise of the comic after the comic got to its hook. I'm not going to spoil it in case anyone has read it or whatever. But the premise that they explained to me had no connection to the show that Netflix actually decided to make. So somewhere along the way, somebody, whether it was a Netflix executive, whether it was Mark Millar, whether it was Stephen DeKnight, whoever it was, made a bad decision in terms of how they wanted to introduce audiences to this world the the season of television that they did for jupiter's legacy in no way made me curious about other stories in this world because it in no way introduced what was actually the best part of the series so whoever made that decision wherever it came That was a decision that cost Netflix millions upon millions of dollars and the ability to have this as a direct franchise that people bought into. There was a bad storytelling decision made literally at point A, you know, at the very beginning. Where do we start this story? They started it at the wrong place. And to me, that is such a cautionary tale about all of these shows that are And it's not just Jupiter's Legacy, but Jupiter's Legacy happened to do it worse. But it's kind of the, you know, it's the audacious thing that they attempted to do with the Perry Mason show, where it's not— Which is being
0: creatively retooled for a second season with new showrunner.
1: But it was already going to be a different show in the second season, because the first season, the entire first season, was a premise pilot. It was was 10 episodes to get us to the Perry Mason, who people already kind of knew if they knew Perry Mason— Which was a, you know, I didn't think that was a horrible decision because I thought a lot of that was done pretty decently, but it was still a decision. And I feel like that's not the only show that has attempted to do that lately, attempted to do basically the entire first season as a premise pilot. I think Mosquito Coast is very close to that as well, where you spend the entire first season getting to something that both the book and the movie get to within 15 minutes. And yes, they embellished it in a lot of ways, but the ways that they embellished it weren't all that creative. Well, maybe the second season actually gets to the really, really good story that's in the book and that was told in the movie, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe they're going to go their own way anyway. It still is very much a cautionary tale about how much audiences will or will not Sit through to get to the eventual good story that they know might or might not be coming in season two.
0: Yeah, it's like remember that show on Hulu called The First, the Sean Penn Space Drama? Well, spoiler alert, I mean, it was canceled after one season, but they also didn't get to space until the last episode. I think it was like episode 10. Like, and they barely just got, you know what I mean? Like, it's literally billed as a space drama, and they, then the bulk of the season (laughs) was never set in space at all. It, you know, I think the, I
1: think streaming has given people the impression that they have more time to tell the stories than necessarily they do i don't think that audience buy-in has changed dramatically just because audience consumption has changed dramatically i still think you need the audience to buy in in an hour you still do whether whether you're going to get to the premise by the end of 10 the process of getting to the premise has to be entertaining. And the process of getting to the premise in Jupiter's Legacy was exhausting, boring, and just not anywhere near good enough to, to make it worthwhile.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the push, obviously, trying to, to create a franchise out of a canceled show is... Not a surprise, you know, and this is going to take us into our next three segments here this week. But it's all part of this, like I said, a global effort to come up with with franchises that can appeal to audiences around the world. And with that, we're going to go to our second topic.
1: Number two.
0: Up next, as part of our focus this week um, on the sprawling international streaming market, we're thrilled to be joined by Larry Tans, the Netflix VP original series for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Tans, who joins us from the Netherlands this week, has been in the role since early 2019. And before that, he was based in Los Angeles and worked as VP content acquisition focused on acquiring foreign original series for Netflix. Thanks for joining us this week, Larry.
2: So great to be here. Thanks, Leslie.
0: And you're in Amsterdam now.
2: I am. Okay.
0: So I, I wanted to talk first because, you know, we are doing this, you know, a, a kind of global, a look at the global rise of streaming. Um, I-, I, You know, you've been overseeing foreign acquisitions and original international series for Netflix since 2014. How competitive is it now with every stream- streaming service so focused on global expansion and foreign acquisitions right now?
2: Well, when I started my journey in 2014, uh, Netflix in the region was just a little townhouse on a canal in Amsterdam. We were just launching France and Germany, and the rest of the world was just really an aspiration. Uh, And and now we have uh, local language originals being uh, produced by teams in Amsterdam, Paris, Berlin... Rome, Madrid. Later this year, we'll have Stockholm, we'll have Copenhagen, and we'll have Istanbul. So really what we've done is from, I'd say, humble beginnings in 2015 with our first show Club de Cuervos in Mexico, um, we've really got become more local and more focused on local storytelling. Uh, And our journey has been trying new things and, uh, and I'd say innovating with uh, these sort of landmark first shows. Um, uh, Dark in Germany, Sabura in Italy, uh, Sacred Games in India, Kingdom in Korea. Uh, we launched Queen Sono last year in South Africa. So now we're producing local language content in 20 countries. And so our whole focus is on working with local storytellers and local producers and local talent on that local level. And what what we're finding is our storytelling is getting better and it's becoming more authentic. And that resonates not just with members in that country, but also around the world. Because what we keep finding is if you are authentic and focus on the storytelling. That great stories really can come from anywhere. They don't have to come from Hollywood, and they can be loved everywhere.
0: Right, and that's you know we have our next guest after this interview, and we just recorded it, so we're kind of doing this out of order in terms of how it's actually playing out for us. But we just we have uh, George K. from Lupan, and he was talking about how big the show has become abroad, you know, a- a- and the the ability of these shows to cross over. So obviously Netflix has found tremendous success with shows like that and, and elite and uh, there's a bazillion others that I'm, that I'm forgetting, you know, uh, money heist is, is probably the biggest one that comes to mind. But as you see these shows cross over, what is the next mandate? Like, you know, George is talking about possibly, you know, expanding the world of Lupin to franchises with prequels and spinoffs, et cetera. So what have you seen in your experience of, the demand, the global appetite for for local originals and how that's influencing the content spend that Netflix is doing.
2: Well, global viewing on our non-English titles for Netflix has doubled globally between 2019 and 2020. So we're seeing the appetite really increase. And that's a function of a couple of things. One is our storytelling is becoming, is more authentic and more local Uh, And we're getting better at understanding our our members in countries uh, that then ends up turning into more successful shows around the world. And then the other piece is we're seeing audiences around the world becoming much more interested in and open to stories from other countries and other languages. So it it helps that we dub in 34 languages. So you can watch Lupin in English or in, uh, Brazilian Portuguese, if, if you wish. And that's helped eliminate barriers for people to watch shows that are not in their language.
1: I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, actually, because George was talking about or or in the future in the next segment we will be talking about uh, how there, of course, is a dubbed version of Lupin, but he still encourages people to watch the French version. What have you guys learned in terms of how much American audiences are willing these days to read their television? If that number has been changing at all, what you can do to encourage people to watch the original native language versions of these shows?
2: Well, we encourage uh, members all around the world to do what's best for them. So <laughs> to watch it when they want, on the device they want, and in the language that they want. And if they choose to read the subtitles, you know, uh, more power to them. So what we find and what we've learned is, you know, English, English dubbing is kind of a new thing in series. And so we're we're getting better at it and our dubbing is getting better. And what we're finding is there are audiences who don't want to read their television and they're more likely to watch and engage in a show if it is dubbed into their language in in, in English as an example. And so what we see is audiences are just growing. So now we have an audience for Lupin who's happy to maybe read subtitles in English, and then there's an expanded audience for Lupin, who is much happier to watch the dub. And what's most important to us is that members have that choice and can decide for themselves. And, and sometimes I'll do both. Sometimes I'll watch a show, I'll start with the subtitles, then I'll go to the dub for a while. And it really is what, what suits you as, as a member, as the, as the audience. I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more about sort of what you guys have,
1: have learned about the international audience. I mean, I know you're not going to tell us about audience size but for example is there a longer tail to the audience for international shows are they more dependent on word of mouth than say for example uh, an american original where it might be the promotional budget and the first week is everything are you looking at a longer time frame in terms of success
2: for our local language shows our primary lens is engagement by the that local audience and so for a show like lupin Believe it or not, really the focus was how do we make this show so compelling and so engaging that you know, everyone in France is talking about it? Uh, and so, um, and when you can achieve that in a country, that word of mouth, and of course the conversation that we can create, really can generate a lot of excitement around a title. And then what happens is because everything is going up in 190 countries at exactly the same time for some of these bigger shows, you suddenly have a global conversation and the global nature uh, of the service and of the platforms that support the promotion of shows can create this incredible moment where suddenly you feel like everybody in the world is talking about Lupin. So it can happen actually pretty quickly for big shows. And then I'd say for shows that don't become global sensations like that, um, For example, we have this amazing show called Ethos from Turkey. Everybody in Turkey was talking about it instantly. And then it took a little bit of time for people in other countries to maybe hear about it and discover it. So a show like that had a bit of a longer tail. But in Turkey, it caught on immediately. With a show like Lupin, when it premieres, is there a
1: moment at which you're able to actually realize, oh my goodness, this has jumped from just being a French thing that French people are excited about to being a global phenomenon? Was there a, was there a point at which suddenly you saw a number or you saw a, a global Twitter trend or whatever where it allowed you to realize, okay, this made the leap and it made the leap faster than anything we've had before?
2: We had Omar C, who's a huge movie star in France. So we, we knew that in France, that Um, anticipation and that buzz would be there and then yeah Dan I think there's this moment where you start to see not only people watching it in other countries but the level of engagement so they're watching it fast and they're watching all of it Uh, and then you see people start talking about it and then when my mother-in-law tells me that she's watching a show called Lupin uh, and I tell her, oh, the fr- show, the French show. And she says, oh, is it a French show? And then, you know, that it's gone mainstream,
0: you know. And when you see that, you know, those kinds of successes right out of the gate, how prone are you to go into those creators and locking them up for overall deals and then kind of looking to expand? You know, we, we heard, you know, heard news this week, like, you know, look, Jupiter's legacy, I think, originally intended to be a, kind of this global superhero show it didn't work and now there's, you know, trying to, to turn that into a franchise. Obviously, Netflix owns Miller World. But when you see something like that, like when you see a, Lu- a Lupin or a money heist, what are the conversations about, like we need to get Omar Sy in a long-term overall deal that keeps him exclusive to Netflix and we need to, to make, you know, the, the Bridgerton effect and have, you know, a prequel spinoff, you know, in the works before season two even comes out, et cetera. Things like The Witcher, same, same like, you know, same strategy there, but how does it apply to the global originals?
2: The first thing we think about is our members love this. How can we make sure that we can do more of this for them? So for Lupin, it's deciding very early on, we want to do more. Going to Omar C., going to George K., and saying, we want to do more. We want to do a lot more, and making that commitment to them so that they know that we're serious. And so Because they also love this character, love this story. Uh, So for us, it's really about how do we get uh, get more of the content to our members and continue the storytelling. And the exclusivity, frankly, is not as important to us as can we make more of this. And that's the same for uh, La Casa de Papel. But in that case, we can go to Alex Pena and say, you're such a great creator. What else can we do with you? And so sometimes there's the ability to do more of that series. Sometimes, like with Alex, it's the ability to tap into his creative mind and, do other things as well. Uh, sometimes it's, it's about extending the IP in a franchise model. What else can we do with this? You know, it always comes back to, we know that our members love this content and love this storytelling, and how do we do more of that for them? And outside of Hollywood, the model is less about locking up talent and exclusivity. And for us, it's really just about how do we how do we do more? How tangible
1: was The quarantine effect in terms of people being like, well, I've seen everything on my main English language Netflix screen. Let's dig deeper. Was that something you guys were able to
2: quantify? I don't think we could quantify that specific effect. We know that people were home and they were watching more of everything. Uh, And so as a result, you have viewing and you have phenomena like um, Queen's Gambit or the Tiger King or Bridgerton, which just everybody's talking about. And I think we saw this across the board in terms of consumption of content and and maybe people dug deeper. Uh, I just I don't know how to quantify that other than there was an overall increase in not just streaming, but in consumption of media across the board and gaming, too.
0: Right. So. Part of of what you guys have done so well is expand and grow abroad where you're maybe, you know, five or six years ago, you were acquiring foreign originals and now you're out there making these local originals. And now you're seeing all of your streaming competitors, HBO Max, et cetera, do the same, acquire foreign originals, expand into local markets with originals. So how has the global appetite for content, whether it be an acquisition or an original, changed you know is it more expensive to 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 do local originals is it you know how, basically how has it the increase in demand changed everything for you guys for you know as the market leader
2: well there's it's exciting that talent realizes that there's a global platform for them to tell their stories so from a talent and storyteller perspective there's incredible opportunity and enthusiasm Uh, We also can... The benefit of all this is more demand means that you need more supply, and that means that there are more seats at the table. So we have the reverse of the Hollywood problem where um, how do you bring new voices into Hollywood? Here it's this huge demand and this opportunity uh, and uh, I'd almost say a shortage of people to fill those seats. So that lets us... Um, take an advantage of the uh, opportunity to bring in new voices and to develop new talent. Uh, because the other thing that we've learned is, people really love to see themselves reflected on screen, and the authenticity of our shows is proof. And the success based on the authenticity is is a proof point of that. So, I think for us, it's enabled us to broaden and expand out, and to bring new voices to the screen. Um, and, uh, and to really invest even more deeply in developing talent, in developing infrastructure, in innovating technology. I just got back from Berlin, from Babelsberg Studios, where we're in production on 1899, which is from Bo and Yantier, the creators of Dark. And this is a big production that is being um it's produced in a virtual production environment and our commitment to that series and further commitment to virtual production has enabled the construction of truly state-of-the-art studios uh in berlin to do virtual production so it's a good example of this demand and this um appetite of our members and of audiences for uh more and bigger and better content that enables us to bring innovation to this uh, to this new studio at Babelsberg and, and and create and enable our creators to do something that's well beyond their their wildest dreams of of how they might produce this show. What is what is the genre on that one on 1899? Well, it's set in 1899, and it's a it's a mystery, uh, a migrant steamship out at sea with people from a bunch of different countries around Europe who are traveling to America, uh, and they encounter a ship uh, that was lost at sea that's entirely abandoned and trying to understand, as the audience is, what happened to the thousand or so people who would have been on that ship. So it's sort of a a mystery drama set in that time period. How much is the mandate for international production, sort of accessible genres
1: but with a local spin? Like, how much do you need them to have the hook that global audiences are going to recognize?
2: We're not looking for the global audience hook. It's really about the local audience. And if a show for us is huge locally but doesn't travel, that's actually okay with us, and we're totally happy with that. And what we're really not doing is trying to globalize a show or water down the local flavor so that it will travel. I think this was a learning and a development. I mean, you know, in the beginning, we were commissioning shows out of LA, you know, Marseille in France, our first show there was commissioned out of LA. Now things are commissioned locally with local talent and local executives. And our message and our, our, um, our ask of them is make the show authentic and local and great for the local audience. And we, the list of examples keeps growing of super authentic show for the country audience that was so good that it traveled and it got watched very broadly. And if you water that down, you end up really not not pleasing anybody. And this is true. So we're doing comedy, which might not travel, but our members in... Sweden want a great local comedy. So we'll do Love and Anarchy, which is huge in Sweden and not watched as much in the U.S. as maybe a crime drama or something like that. But, but we're fine with that because it's really for our members.
0: You know, the other piece of, of the industry that's so inter- interesting is when you see a big hit in, in America that it, it winds up getting a local version made, right? Like, I think I just read something that, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is getting like a, a foreign adaptation. Is that something that you guys ha- have thought about doing? Like, is, is there a, an elite version that could be made stateside or is the magic really in, as you say, the authenticity, the authenticity of that local language show in that local community and the fact that people want those actors, those characters, et cetera?
2: I, Leslie, I, I think now that we have established ourselves in some of the creative communities and that our members have some expectation um, and some trust about making great local content, I think we can start to do formats and adaptations. And if it makes sense in a country, maybe to do a version of that, or maybe to remake it in that country, I, I think it's something that we could do. That's interesting. What's the first show
0: that you see, you know, the first one of your shows that you see being done that way?
2: one of our biggest global hits from Spain, La Casa de Papel, we are remaking a version of that in Korea. And and Korean audiences watched the original one there as well, but this will be a version for Korea. So I think there will be more opportunities to do that. We've talked obviously about the hits from Italy, from
1: Germany, from Spain, etc. There was Queen Sono last year. If you had to guess... What is the next territory that maybe hasn't had a breakout hit domestic? And if you had to guess, where is the next breakout going to come from?
2: I think we'll see a breakout show from Denmark. I think we'll see a breakout show from an Arabic-speaking country. I think we'll see a breakout show from Germany. Well, we've had barbarians and dark. I think we'll see more from Germany. I think we'll see a breakout show from Russia. We just announced our first Russian original series called Anna K, which is a contemporary take on the famous Anna Karenina story, and it's so awesome. I think for our first original out of Russia, it it will it will be huge for us in Russia. But I think it's an example of a show that will be embraced. By the world
0: we always ask uh, our showrunner guests what they're watching but i'm i'm curious given given your position what are you watching right now
2: this is like which child do you like the best (laughs) (laughs) i just watched the season finale of castlevania which i loved um and i am watching who killed sarah out of mexico
0: Uh, also another big
2: do you legitimately only
1: have time to be watching the uh the various netflix international (laughs) originals or do you watch anything off of netflix
2: i'm so privileged that i can fill my viewing time with our own shows but i but i do try to watch things off of netflix just to see what's out there and to learn uh so i i try to try to do try to do both well larry thank you so much for joining us this week thank you so much it's such a pleasure to be here with you number
1: three Coming up third this week is the first of our two Showrunner Spotlight interviews. Our first is with George Kay, the co-creator of Netflix's Lupin, a stylish thriller based on the eponymous Gentleman Thief, made popular in books by Maurice LeBlanc. Kay's credits include Netflix's Criminal UK, as well as episodes of Killing Eve and The Hour. Welcome to the podcast, George. Good to be here. So the first thing that our listeners will immediately notice are that you are not particularly French sounding. So I'd like to sort of go with the background of your involvement with this project and what the particular challenges and advantages of this international feeling scene were for
3: you. Yeah, well, I'm British sounding. So I'm uh, from London, and um, but I was working with Netflix prior to getting involved in Lupin. Um, so... Um, the head, Kelly Luganbiel, who, who was running uh, European Netflix at the time, contacted me because the French division wanted to, wanted to do a show uh, with uh, Omar Sy, who was an actor I was aware of but hadn't really got to know his work so well at the time, and uh, to, to star in a show that would be orientated around um, uh, Arsene Lupin the books that I had also not heard of that, uh, so much. So it was a perfect storm of ignorance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you get all those different components and what is the research process like to make sure that you actually have a story to tell? And then how do you find yourself writing a show in French? Is it a, did you take it in school or did you have to have people working with you to make sure you got the logistics right? So the
3: process was, re- and, and, and the lack of being able to speak French, it, it all made it quite natural and quite simple. Because really, it was a case of let's take a look at these books, let's see what they are kind of what the headline is, what what are these books, what, what? and quite quickly, I recognised that kind of character, those kind of books, where they sit in the kind of landscape of fiction, and I was aware, obviously, being British, of Sherlock Holmes. You know, one is aware of Tintin or uh, Raffles or Scarlet Pimpernel. These kind of uh, turn-of-the-century adventure stories that kind of seem to kind of, if if you look at it that way, seem to kind of be kind of clustered in that time period, and that's when the Arsene Lupin books were written originally. Um, But at the same time, then, just coming to Omar's work and I'd seen uh, Untouchables, which is his big French uh, movie hit, Um, but looking at his work and seeing this guy as a performer who would have to wear lots of different hats and have real range if he was going to star in a show that was kind of based on Arsene Lupin. But then meeting Omar was 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 fantastic. He's completely charismatic, charming, um, and I just saw someone that I knew that guys would want to be like, that women would 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 like, um, that kids would look up to. He's got a, such a sort of universal appeal that suddenly it became like quite an interesting challenge to think well. I kind of want to write a show for Omar, and and this Arsène Lupin character feels like it's just this perfect ratchet to kind of ex- to, to turn him through loads of different versions of himself and to really explore that range as a performer. So what is that show? And it can't be that it can't be that Omar sees wearing a top hat and a monocle. There's so many more modern things that are really interesting about his place in French society. The fact he's so loved here. The fact he's a Um, uh, a black lead film star in France today and where France is today in its politics and its societal attitudes. And I was thinking, well, we can say something really modern here, but we can wrap it up in what, you know, we all grew up with kind of network style, universal TV storytelling, you know. So I was essentially getting to write like the kind of tea time TV, as we call it in the UK, that I grew up watching quite episodic, quite self-contained story of the week. You know, quite Quantum Leapy or quite A-Team-ish or MacGyver or any of these shows that we might have all kind of... They're satisfying narratively because we get get a little bit of a win, but then we keep moving the character along through his his story arc. So that that was kind of... Those are the kind of things swimming around in my head as I kind of came into it.
0: You know, and one thing that I I do wanted to mention, you know, the show has... Crossed over, you know, where it's now a, a monster hit in America, uh, according to, you know, the metrics that Netflix puts out. Whether whether you buy into all, all of that stuff or not, um, it still managed to break through with American audiences. At, at what point, when you were making the show, did this feel like something that could be this big universal hit, that could that had appeal beyond France?
3: Um, it was intended. And I designed my work on it very much to kind of create a show that the whole family could watch, like we're kind of saying with the tea time TV thing. Um, and I was really delighted by the data that showed quite how evenly split across the kind of age groups it, it seemed to be. Um, so there was definitely a sense of creating universal story points, you know, family story, uh adventure and, and and fun that kind of that, that is mainstream and if we can do that in an interesting way then that, that, that that's quite exciting um, no one expects a show to do the numbers that um, Lupin uh, has done because um, that would be weird to expect that <laughs> but that's a pleasant surprise but there's definitely some other things happening in the world that I mean we benefited from the fact that Omar's a wonderful star that somehow america hadn't quite woken up to because he'd been in things like uh in big movie franchises as the french guy who's fifth on the call sheet or but really great performer and he's just the star waiting to pop so when i met him i was just like well this guy's we knew he was a big star in france but we just what a wonderful chance to introduce him to a wider audience was my thinking so i no one expected it to do well but i think universal themes Lockdown made a family viewing experience something that perhaps was even more appealing. Yeah, I mean, there were other things going on in societal and politics that we've sort of brushed on there that George Floyd happened. Like, here's a really positive black male lead and a big show that's fun and, and progressive but doesn't shy away from some issues. So maybe there was some of that going around. I don't know. If we, if we knew, we'd, we'd, we'd do it every time. But I think there's some nice things going on that helped.
1: Was there ever any broaching of the idea of doing this in English with everybody talking with thick accents, or of alternatively doing alternate audio tracks—you know, an English version and a, a French
3: version? Well, the show's dubbed, so all, uh, I mean, the the, the, the bigger—you um, can watch it dubbed. I really think you shouldn't, because I think subtitles are just what's great about subtitles is they create a level of concentration. So if you're going to commit to a show with subtitles, you're going to commit properly, because you can't really your eyes shouldn't leave the screen. There was never any suggestion that it would be in English with a kind of um, like a like an old war movie with a French accents going around. Um, and I think that's really important to its success. In that it is, it is unashamedly French in terms of its visuals, its characters, its settings. I think even working on the show in France, I was really keen to say to the French members of the team. You've no idea what an amazing place uh, everyone in the world thinks Paris is. Let's walk towards the Frenchness rather than try and meet some audience in the Mid Atlantic somewhere because we're trying to uh, introduce American characters. Or um, that feels like what Netflix has, has started to do in a really pre- uh, positive way. It used to be that we, a British movie, would need Andy McDowell to be in it, to, or, or uh, you know, in order to kind of get the financing, or. Uh, but now we can really make content that comes from those countries and is really proud of it and shows it off at it, at their best, you know, so uh, it was always about France.
1: So you've talked a bit about what having Omar as your leading man allowed you to do in terms of approaching the subject matter in terms of race. and And I'm curious about that because... Obviously, France has its own very particular history of racism towards uh, immigrant groups, which is one that the UK and the United States are certainly uh, familiar with on their own terms. But how did you want to approach it? Because on one hand, in the past, race is very much a piece of Assange's backstory it's part of what shaped him but in the present i saw a lot of people discussing how his almost his superpower is that as a black man in paris people don't even notice him he's he's not being noticed and therefore they don't notice there's this 6 foot 3 black man wandering around stealing the crown jewels how did you want to balance that and make it something that you could address in this series
3: well it began originally with some real practical kind of considerations because you know Omar, when he walks into a room, everyone notices. So if he's going to play a Sandy Op and he's going to be walking into rooms all through your show uh, in different disguises, people are going to start to notice. So either the disguise has to be good or what we, are, what I kind of hit upon quite early was that we have social blind spots. So we don't notice certain people, because not because of what they look like, but because of their demeanour or their status or what they're wearing. And so the privilege of some creates that blind spot that the likes of Assane Diop can capitalize on. Because I didn't want every episode to be full with uh, Omar wearing a different wig or like a fancy, I didn't want it to be like a fancy dress party. I wanted to make more cleverer statements than that, hopefully. Um, so status and society and and and, and the kind of, the, the places where we don't quite connect as a, as a society were kind of opportunities for Assane. So when you're looking at race, from that angle, I'm, not looking, I'm looking at race as a tool to break into a museum. And suddenly we're exploring stories of racism and um, prejudice, but with a, in a fun kind of packaging, because we have a kind of fun and entertaining objective, which means that when we make these points, we can wear them lightly, but still leave that lingering social points that we're making without kind of disrupting the show in terms of its just core ambition of being fun.
1: And and were there conversations that Omar was a part of about his own experiences and things he wanted to make sure that you understood about kind of being Omar C in Paris in 2021?
3: A a little bit, but, but, and he's very kind of, we talk all the time about the scripts and it's often, uh, and I, 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 it's something that's worth saying. It's not always just about him or his race. It's just about pushing through prejudice in different aspects. So, um, uh, Ageism is something I wanted to write about a lot. There's an older journalist in episode four. Um, so I really wanted to write about older women in the workplace and how they can get overlooked. And so we're sometimes Asan Diop teams up with people who've experienced another kind of blind spot. So he's not just working on the racial uh, discrimination lines, although that's obviously a, uh, something he carries with him at times. Um, but We're able to do different things and, and make different social points. Um, like, for example um france's relationship with the colonies it's it's its empire you know um so there's stuff like that in episode five where he essentially in a way reclaims jewels plundered from from the from what would have been called the Belgian congo um back in the modern day, but he does it with a big smile on his face, so it's kind of it's a sort of hopefully it's winning on on two levels. Was there anything that you
1: learned was different about the way that France has related to its colonies, as it were, as opposed to the way uh, the British Empire related to what it plundered over the years from its colonies, et cetera?
3: No, I think that's a kind of pretty broad you know, Western European guilt thing. We're all kind of, ex- you know, and in Britain, for example, it seems like we are proud of our empire in a way that's sort of becoming increasingly sort of ludicrous. Um uh, so, yeah, I, I think that the British and the French and and, and, and other empires like that uh, have very similar problems and histories. And I think the difference between England and France or Britain and France, for me, was just how open people were to exp- uh, expressing their prejudices. The, you know, people will say things on Twitter or I know people will say terrible things on Twitter in the UK and the US. But... People will casually say things as if they don't expect that to cause any kind of a, a, a alarm from anyone else. I think that the the prejudice is more sort of casually worn on the surface um, at times, and so I had no qualms about sort of taking that on.
0: Um, I do want to talk about the decision to split the season into two different parts. Um, when you were making the show and, and you know, obviously I, I would imagine you guys were shut down at, at some point during COVID, but when did the idea of splitting this into two halves first come up?
3: So COVID was coming. I think there was a sort of I, and I forget that COVID dates are not very good on them, but but we knew that uh, that was a that was possibly going to shut our production down. Not for very long. It was very clear that we were we were well supported and insured and we had the right measures in place we were shut down for maybe a month or two um but prior to that we'd already talked about breaking season one uh into two parts and so as the covid thing so it was a bit of a combination of both as the as as kind of covid became more and more of a sort of potential sort of problem for the production we'd already started to think what if we split five and five and um and we and the the important point is we were able to write towards that so rather than just get some cleaver and just chop the uh, season in half, I intentionally wrote that really stark cliffhanger, knowing that we would be back, but we wouldn't be. It wouldn't be too long before we were back. I think it would have been a little bit much to leave that cliffhanger if we weren't going to come back for another eighteen months. But knowing we were only a few months behind the next block, that felt fun.
0: Absolutely, and, and when you when you think about. You know, obviously not getting into spoilers because we don't wanna ruin what happens in part two here, but when you talk think about the future of, of this show, is there a season two? Can you talk a little bit about how part two ends and if it does set something up?
3: There is, yeah. So there's a part three. So we're we're sort of more and more um stepping into talking about them as parts. Um but but part one and two go together. Part three and 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 whatever might follow would would then therefore go together. There's definitely going to be a part three, um, and uh, you know we should look at parts one and two as the the rev- the avenging of the, of Babakar's death and the revenge mission against Pellegrini, uh, and essentially the story of the Queen's necklace, which is used as a kind of as a sort of uh, a tool to help kind of buy progress on that story. Um, part three will be a, a new um, adventure entirely, with a new emotional um, goal uh, and, and similar sort of uh, amount of adventures and self-contained stories to kind of get us across that arc. So yeah, similar, but 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 moving on from from the from the kind of central arc of, of one and two.
0: You know, as the show became a breakout, um, you know. But locally and abroad, obviously, um, how what kind of conversations have you had with Netflix beyond the idea of doing a part three about expanding this into a, a larger franchise with spinoffs and prequels, et cetera?
3: We have had um, good conversations about potentially those kind of things. We it's obviously a uh, it's done well, and I think that we want to get the most out of it out of it, but without kind of overdoing it or without rushing. Um, I'm being encouraged to think um, expansively, but we're, right now we're, we're only committed to part three. That answer's quite kind of guarded, isn't it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You,
3: yeah.
1: you can be as unguarded as you want to be. We're happy to we're happy to listen to the unguarded answer. I, I, I can
3: imagine. Yeah, I am. I, um, I'm going to leave it there.
0: Yeah, he's also <laughs> in a room filled with Netflix publicists. So, yeah. <laughs>
2: well,
3: the, the answer I have given is the answer I have given. But yeah. <laughs> well, what, what do the books give you in terms
1: of avenues where you can go forward? Because obviously you're not adapting the books straightforwardly and directly, but do they give you avenues where you can take Asan as a character that's parallel to Lupin as a character and where you can bring in other similar parallel
3: characters to expand on the universe in that way? It's it's great for me because it's a total war chest of stuff that we can just go looking for. We can really kind of use things. We can reuse things. I'm I'm just looking at a a, a story for part three that that reuses a book that we've already seen used once, um, but from a different angle with a different detail. So so and we can continue to draw parallels, but we can also continue to have a san, encourage the world to see those parallels or not, and play games with the source of of, uh, his source material is now known to the world. So how much he lets the world know that he's using it and what clues or misinformation he uses inspired by those books becomes a thing. So there's loads of layers going on, which are really fun to kind of use and subvert and and reference or, you know, disguise things through the use of the books. Well, it's mentioned in the second
1: half of the season that one of Maurice LeBlanc's rules for, uh, his main character was in order to be the gentleman side of the gentleman f- thief, he doesn't kill. And that's sort of part of the code. How does the code that LeBlanc made for his character compare to the code that you make for Asan? Is is it the same basic morality that you want the characters to have or does the 2021 world-all make it a more complicated thing to be a
3: gentleman there are, thief? There are things that there are things that are complicated in the Arsen Lupin books, which I'm I'm glad to move on from in a way that's fun and, and feels modern. I think that Hassan's relationship with women is much more sort of uh, complicated and uh, realistic and interesting perhaps than they are in the original books. But there's loads of good things in the books in terms of his his arrogance, his confidence, and the way he does his, his his tricks and his robberies that are are a great thing to use. The idea of not killing was definitely something that matched with the, the Lupin that we wanted a sandy to be. Um and, and it kind of matches with the show as well. I mean, there's not much there's there's no bloodshed. Uh the, the violence is always always very um understood and, and 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 only used in when really necessary um to create that kind of family show. What sense have you gotten
1: of the access that you might have around Paris, given the success of the show? Because you guys obviously had a tremendous amount of museum and landmark and, you know, Parisian access. Does being a global hit mean that they're going to open all the doors for you and say, come on, you can shoot anywhere you want. The Eiffel Tower is yours for a week if you want to do a set piece there. Or has the show maybe become too big to get away with filming in some of
3: those places, do you think? I think it's probably positive. I mean, when I wrote the Louvre, I wrote interior Louvre day and I thought, well, I'll go back and i have change that when we find out where we'll really shoot it. And then they, the producer said the Louvre said yes. <laughs> so I was like, so right from the start, we were well welcomed. Um, so like, I think we really want to keep pushing and, 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 and uh, trying our luck with some of these places because I think that's kind of really important to the show. So fingers crossed. I think it's gone well so far.
0: And we always like to end uh, our showrunner interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying lately?
3: I just last night and I'm slow as I always like to, well, I say this as an excuse of being slow. I always like to let things settle for a little bit, but I just watched mayor of Easttown episode one. It's amazing. Did you, have you seen it? Absolutely. So, did you review it? Well, did you, ha- did you do a podcast about it?
1: Uh, we, d- we didn't talk to the showrunner about it, but I have definitely reviewed it positively on the podcast. It's, it's really good, and it also, it does something that's really hard. It, it gets to the right ending, which in a mystery you're always worried about. So I'm going to spoil no more than that. But- All right,
3: I'm one episode in, so that's my treat. So I'm, I'm glad you think it's worth persevering. So yeah, that's what I've been watching. It's really good. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, George. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Good to meet you. Thank you. The second half of the first season of Lupin premieres Friday, June 11th on Netflix.
3: Number four. Our
1: second guest this week in our showrunner spotlight or showrunners spotlights is Nita Mansoor, the creator, writer, and director of the Peacock comedy We Are Lady Parts, about an all-female, all-Muslim punk band in the UK. Mansoor is a first-time showrunner whose credits include directing two episodes of Doctor Who. Thanks for joining us, Nita.
4: No worries.
1: So, I want to get to the show's roots. You originally did the pilot as part of the Channel 4 Comedy Blaps slate. And I think for our American podcast listeners, you're probably going to need to explain what the Comedy Blaps is slash are and then how it sort of took two years before it became an actual series after that.
4: Yeah. So, hi. Um. So, the Channel 4 Comedy Blaps are this kind of hothouse of – um place where Channel 4 kind of bring in new comedy writers um you know oftentimes it's stand-ups um and allow them to kind of create a little short you know a pilot even of their comedy idea and sort of they put all these pilots out on YouTube and online and see which ones do well and then from that sort of selection Channel 4 may or may not commission like a full series so um Lady Parts um, we Are Lady Parts was one of those um, shorts um, that then got picked up to be a full show.
1: And and how does the original Blap compare to what the show actually became?
4: You know, in a lot of ways, it was quite similar. What was really cool about doing the the Blap, although, you know, initially I was a bit irked by it. I was like, you know, I just want to go to a full shoot series. Well, actually... Doing a blap allowed me to bring in like cool crew and HODs who may not have done that much TV, but who were really like really doing interesting short film work and commercials work. So I got to really build a team, and so the visual style that we set in the blap very much is the same for the full show. You know, there's more bells and whistles in the show, so like more flights of fancy, more more heightened moments, and then there's a whole new world of like um, rather not just the grunge punk world. We've got the I mean, as uni friends who are a whole different kind of group of women. So yeah, it's definitely like a widening of the world.
0: And, you know, going back to the original idea, not just how you got on the air, but, you know, but that whole process sounds very similar to when Amazon used to do these, the pilot choices under its original regime, you know, they, they'd make five or six pilots, they put them up, the audience allegedly got to vote. And from there, they, one would get a series order. So, but I, Going ba- back to the original idea, where did it, the idea for the show actually come from and how much of this is actually based on you and your life?
4: <laughs> yeah, the idea for the show kind of was born out of a sense of frustration with the kinds of representation I was seeing, particularly of Muslim women, um, you know, just as being oppressed and, and lacking agency. And it was definitely, I think it had a couple of meetings sort of back to back where I was being asked to write about kind of the tragedy of what it means to be a Muslim woman which was bizarre for a few reasons. I mean mainly because I'm a comedy writer and all my specs and my short films were very much comedic. So I was like, why have they asked me to do this? You know, it sort of it was slightly confusing. So then, you know, I sort of had a moment of self-reflection and I was like, you know, if I am if I'm gonna look at this aspect of my identity that I find so personal, I sort of wanna do it in my way, just combining all the things I love and just really leaning into things that I love so it would have to be a, a comedy and it would have to have lots of music in it um and you know the music element was just like oh wouldn't it be cool to make some write some songs with my siblings for the show that's kind of where that came from but you know more than that like I was just really wanting to reflect the kinds of women I knew you know and bring them to the screen that was really exciting to me um you know I grew up in a household with lots of music um I grew up much more like the main character. I mean, I was very obsessed with sort of American folk music, of like 60s and 70s. And, you know, Paul Simon was my idol. And so there's that. And my old sister was much more into punk. But we had a really strong kind of music sense in, in the home. So I wanted to bring that to the screen as well.
1: Well, I'm curious, when you got brought in and people would say, pitch us your story of tragic modern muslim life would you immediately respond that's not the version of life i want to tell a story to or did you try pitching versions your version of the tragic story
4: yeah i mean when i was taking those meetings it was i was like really green i mean i'm still green let's face it but like i was you know it was really early so i was still kind of unsure of how to kind of be in some meetings you know i very polite i kind of be very polite and british about it maybe and just decline and thank them and it's no not not quite for me and excuse myself and then be very angry and write in my journal about how how upset and you know (laughs) I am so it was never a kind of it didn't come to anything too exciting in the meeting I would just kind of you know politely excuse myself and was decided I would then come up with an idea and bring that to people rather than be pitched stuff and then asked to bring my you know who I am to it Um, so that's kind of what I I did
0: you know you, you know, you mentioned that you were frustrated with the uh, the way that, that the Muslim community has been portrayed in film and television. You know, in your experience, who's doing it right and what are you tired of seeing?
4: I think it's quite an exciting time for TV, just like now, just seeing all the kind of new voices coming through. Um, in terms of exciting Muslim representation that I've seen recently is obviously Rami, I think is brilliant. I think it's like so exciting and cool. Um, but then again... You know, with the question of what I'm sick of seeing is is an interesting one. I, I was, I was speaking to a group of um, new Muslim writers, and we we're talking about what are we sick of, of seeing, and, and it's not that I would want to cancel any kinds of storylines. You know, that part. You know, you, you don't want to say I don't want ever seen an overbearing Muslim father because that's a trope. Because you know, there might be a, a young writer for whom they want to explore that aspect and it's less like certain storylines I don't want to see. It's sort of like, who's speaking? Why are they, why are they sort of expressing this story? Um, so I've been quite kind of careful to just like not say, I don't want to see X, Y, Z because I've seen it before. You know, it's okay to see something again. It's just like, is there nuance there? Is it being kind of exhaust- exoticized? Those sorts of questions.
1: Well, you ha- still have a main character here whose mother... She literally says, tells her there's more to life than husbands. And when she says that, I laughed out loud because I thought, my goodness, that's sort of the exact opposite of what every other mother in this situation on this kind of show would say. How much fun was it to turn that particular convention or stereotype upside down?
4: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was so much fun to write that character. Um, and, you know, this actress, Shobu Kapoor, who plays the mother, is just one of like a great British actress and... You know, to see her just totally bring it to life it was so cool um, in terms of like subverting the stereotypes, I've realized, you know, in hindsight, yeah, that's what I was doing. But as I'm writing, I was just so much enjoying living in the, the space of that character and how she kind of interacts with her daughter, who is much, you know, is quite square, really, and is like trying to kind of play things by the book. So it, it was really fun to play that mother daughter relationship.
1: I just don't know when the last time I was that I saw the child being the one who wants to stick to traditions and the parents being like, why don't you, why don't you be more modern? Why don't you have more of a life? You know, that, that seemed like an interesting subversion, whether you meant to sub- be to be subversive or not, I guess.
4: <laughs> no, I, mean, I think I've seen it in like AbFab. Someone said to me that, you know, AbFab, the mother daughter relationship in that is quite similar. I was like, oh, I never made that connection, but that's pretty cool. <laughs>
0: You know, in a larger sense, you know, so much of, of our episode this week is focused on the global streaming market and how it's really exploded in, in the past year. So obviously this, you know, you, you talked at length about how the show started out on Channel 4 as part of the kind of the pilot process. But at what point did you think that this was a show
4: that had international crossover appeal? I'm trying to remember if I even thought about that. You know, if, I think I was in quite a small world of UK TV, even as I was as I was pitching it um, and just getting the full Channel Four series felt like that that was the win, um but I think as I was writing it, I did have a sense that this is you know it's kind of a universal story of someone trying to find their voice it's i did I did believe in its appeal I think um but I never really had aspirations when I was writing it. I was just kind of trying to to stay with the story and not I always get a bit nervous I suppose maybe it's just being right of like dreaming t- too big too soon or you know just just gotta get that next step so you know for it to be launching on Peacock today is kind of insane um but really really exciting
1: let's talk a little bit about the music as as you say you wrote the songs primarily with your siblings how long have you guys been making music together and what are the different parts that you all play in that creative process
4: yeah, I can't remember not making music with my siblings. I, you know, I have very clear, vivid memories of when I was obsessed, when I had my like Paul Simon obsession. Me and my sister would come and play like Simon Garfunkel songs together, and she would be Garfunkel and I was Paul Simon, and we had the right height difference and everything. And I just remember this vividly. Um, and my brother, you know, when he started playing guitar, he picked up guitar because I used to play guitar, and then immediately, like within a week, was better than me. I was so so annoyed. Um, so yeah, it's always been what we've done. Um, you know, when we were writing the songs, I realized like we kind of each had a role. Um, my brother, my younger brother who also scored the show, um, and who also taught the actors how to play the instruments, he basically plays all the instruments. So he could just jump on and like, think of a quick, you know, guitar riff and then put down a drum sort of plays. Me and my sister were kind of thinking more lyrics and ideas. And my sister's also really great on melody. You know, I, I did just essentially use their incredible talent to, to help bolster the show, which was, which was great. And then, of course, my brother-in-law, who is just, he used to be in a real punk band, so he was kind of overseeing the punk sound of it. Um, so, yeah, it was a kind of very natural division of labor that seemed to work well
0: you know, you you did, you created the show, you you were the only writer on the show and you directed every episode of the show. And now hearing about the songwriting, it it really was a true family experience. But, you know, in in success, is this something that goes to a second season? And if so, when I'm knocking on wood because I really loved it, but, and if it does, would you open up a writer's room and maybe bring in, uh, you know, uh, some younger writers and give them their shot much in the same way that you did with the people who filmed the pilot?
4: Yeah, you know, I mean, that's something that, I'm so excited to to do and I'm trying to work out how best I can you know bring people with me and I, there's certain certain people that I you know whose work I love We're up-and-coming directors and writers who I'm really kind of championing um and you know for series two fingers crossed if we get get one there's so many awesome writers that I'm so ready to tap up um and just bring into it because they're they're brilliant um but it was really interesting for series one I think you know it, it, although, like you said, I wrote it and directed it um, for Channel Four. It's quite a short series. There's six 24-minute episodes, so it's there's not a lot there. And I think for me, one of the reasons why I thought I'm gonna with this one sort of write it all was I was still trying to find my voice and what I wanted to say, and I was very much doing that. And maybe it's maybe you see it. Um, I was doing that as I was writing it, and. And so to bring another writer on to try and get into my head, it just felt, um, felt strange for the first series. But now, it kind of, now I kind of have a sense of who I am and what I want to say, having made the show. It's definitely something I'm really excited to do.
1: Well, as you go back and look at the six episodes, can you see your sort of thought process and your growing process as you go along? Can you see the sort of tweaks you were making as you went along?
4: Yeah, I can see so much. <laughs> the stress. <laughs> um, and anguish as I watch it <laughs> but also <you> know? <laughs> hopefully a lot of just mainly laughs but yeah yeah so it's, it's a weird one because you know as we spoke earlier there is an autobiographical element which just is quite, feels quite revealing sometimes when you're making a show that sort of goes out onto multiple platforms and it's TV, it's not even like a novel. So who are, you know, it doesn't feel right to be like pouring so much anguish into something, but yeah, I can definitely track a lot of sort of fear and pain and anguish through, (laughs) through the show.
0: I do want to talk about casting. So, you you know, you, you did mention that your brother taught the cast how, how to play some of these instruments, but but how hard was it to find these actresses who were musical
4: and could act? It was tough, um, but it was like one of the most exciting aspects of the show, bringing, finding if, you know, a new cast, you know, of these incredible diverse women, um, you know, there was also a music element to the casting process, like can they be punk, can they be musical, um, as well as there was, you know, can they do the comedy and and work in an ensemble? Because I think the show really lives and dies on the, you know, the ensemble at the heart of it being charming and winning and so on. So it, it you know, the, the casting process had a lot of different elements to it. And we did, and we not only did um, chemistry reads for the main group, we also did them for the university group to make sure that group of women, you know, they also kind of bounce off each other in the right way. Because for me, it's, you know, it's, it's finding rhythm in the comedy and, and, you know, you realize not, not everyone, even Greg, not everyone is sort of there for that. So it was a long, um, but ultimately like so rewarding process. You know, when I watched the, the show, I just, yeah, I'm just so thrilled by how the, the actors, you know, brought the characters to life.
1: Well, did they have to bring, you know, guitars to the audition or did you say, can you play the guitar and you had to take it on faith? Did anyone lie to you about their musical skills? Basically is my question. <laughs> uh,
4: they couldn't because my, my brother was there with a guitar for half an hour. And it would be like, here's a guitar, here are some chords. And it was whether or not they could just pick it up roughly in, you know, they, cause you know, Sarah who plays Sarah, who's the lead guitarist had never played guitar before. Um, but Within half an hour working with my brother, my brother's like, yeah, she can pick it up. She can, you know. She was very quickly finding the chord shapes, and she was very, you know, she was singing in a punk style. She could drop the kind of musical theatre sound to her voice, and you know, he could he to- he could tell it immediately that she would be able to just just you know play them play the songs." because we had we had planned quite an extensive rehearsal period for the actors to really get comfortable with the instruments as well
1: in an ideal world in the hypothetical second season, is there more music like do you do you see this becoming the kind of show where it could sustain multiple songs per episode or or do you feel like maybe the song per episode here is is about as much as you have the energy to produce?
4: <laughs> i don't know I'm, I'm interested to see like if we do like scale up the show what will happen will it become like you know great or will it lose something i'm not sure um you know it's it's been a difficult balance because the episodes are so short and on channel four it's 24 minutes and that's all you get um there's no real leeway there so it was like trying to find the right balance of you know, char- which characters do we go with? How do we bring the ensemble together and the music there? So it was quite a, a kind of jigsaw, really. And I think sort of depending if I get more episodes, you know, I'd always want to I'd always want to do mu- more music um, and find new cool covers that the band can do. So I definitely want to do more of that. But it's it's tough in those 24 minutes to get it all right. We're at a moment, at
0: least, you know, stateside, where this kind of feel good television has become Kind of the 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 balm for what we've all gone you know just gone through in terms of the you know with COVID and everything else. Um, When you see a show that that's as overwhelmingly positive like this and has this this great. Sense of female empowerment and and just so many d- different themes that resonate was that in the back of your mind at all as as you were working on on season one that this is could be kind of like an antidote for someone who's who's been struggling for you know throughout the past year and and dealing with this sense of loneliness and missing their friends and and as they've been in lockdown et cetera
4: hmm. well you know I actually wrote the show before the pandemic happened, so I, you know it kind of came out it's very fortuitous that I kind of came out at a, a time where it felt like it could it could sort of be a joyful distraction um but you know I think I was definitely wanting for me that the joyfulness of it was again wanting to just tackle this idea you know this very serious lens that has been kind of put upon Muslim women as a lot sort of long suffering and wanting to just sort of smash that with like it can be funny and full of joy um, rather than trying to kind of maybe consciously, you know, fix something. But he, yeah, I had such a good time writing it and that gave me joy. So I'm hoping if like any of that can translate, w- you know, that would be sweet. But I don't think I was really thinking further than like just getting to, you know, get the show made. And then, you know, now it's sort of finding audiences. It's That's just, that's for me really exciting, like oh people are watching it. that's cool.
1: I'm interested in the idea that you need to sort of resist the temptation to consciously fix representation because that seems like it's the sort of thing that would be an awful lot of pressure to put on yourself as you start a series. I'm going to get this all right, what's gotten been gotten wrong before. But still, as you watch this, Show there are so many characters and there are so many different shades and gradations, and obviously, you don't have a checklist that you're sitting going, I'm gonna have this kind of Muslim woman and this kind and this kind, but still, how conscious are you of I want to make sure that the people I haven't seen before, the people who I know, are the people who I'm writing here?
4: Mm. Um, you know, when I was writing it, I definitely wanted to show different kinds of ways of being a Muslim woman, and you know, with a couple of the characters, they can disagree and be very different people, but neither of them is having a crisis of faith. I knew I wanted to do that. Um, And I think more than that, as you said, I didn't... I tried to free myself too much from this burden of, um, oh, I need to make sure I get representation right, because that will stop anyone trying to make a joke um, the pressure of that kind of the thing. So oftentimes when I, you know, there'd be days where I felt it too much, I would not write because I was like, I can't, I'm too stressed about this. Um, what what I, I feel is a pressure. Um, and I would have to go away and watch lots of Spinal Tap to just like come down from the stress just to be like, Oh, comedy's just funny, just funny, just try and be funny. And, you know, I had to almost free. Yeah. I'd have like to, Get out of that headspace that I, you know, obviously I can't represent um, such a diverse group of people. I'm only one voice. This is me talking to myself. I'm only one voice. I need to just connect to my specific truth and maybe, you know, the things I know and the women I know. Go watch some Spinal Tap, look at some Withnal and I. Ah, oh, jokes. I know what jokes are. Okay, now I can write again. Like, there was a lot of that on sometimes on a daily basis. I had to call my mom and be like, I'm I i can not do representation. I'm gonna fail. Everyone's gonna hate me. And she was like, if You can't take the heat gap of the kitchen. I was like, God mum. Um so <laughs> it was it was tough, but you know, ultimately I'm glad I did it.
0: <laughs> well, we always do like to uh end these interviews with the same question: what are you watching and enjoying?
4: I just Smash through Bo Burnham's Inside on Netflix. Oh, it's too good. Um, so I've just watched it again before you're on the call. I think I think that's that's just a brilliant Netflix comedy special with lots of brilliant com- you know music. Um what else am I watching? I I finished Mayor of Easttown, which I loved. Um, I also love the S N L um, spoof, the murder Doda spoof of that. is brilliant. Um, but, but the show is great, too. It's just like been been wonderful to to watch that. And I think, you know, I was a bit late. I, I finished uh, Russell T. Davis's "It's a Sin um, just recently. I've been you know watched that. It's just so wonderful. It's so cool Um, because that's a Channel 4 show, to be on Channel 4 kind of next to it. So I'm like, oh, brilliant. Um, So those are sort of the things that I've been like watching most recently.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. We Are Lady Parts premiered Thursday, June 3rd on Peacock. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches are We Are Lady Parts on Peacock, Stephen King adapts Lissy's Story for Apple and Netflix bows Vertigo comic book series Sweet Tooth, as well as the second and final season of Feel Good. Dan, what you got?
1: There's a lot of good stuff this weekend. There there really is and a lot of different good stuff. So if, for example, last week felt a little sluggish because the networks and streamers decided "Eh, people will be with family and barbecuing and, you know, honoring our Honoring our veterans and whatnot, maybe this week they decided, okay, let's let's get back in front of the couch and people can watch some TV. A lot of good stuff. Uh, I I want to sort of start with Feel Good because it's a show that is ending, and, and that makes me a little sad because the first season was really very good and didn't get quite the attention it deserved. It it came out at the beginning of the quarantine in March of, of 2020 and you know I, I don't know if necessarily Tiger King simply sucked up all of the Netflix eyeballs or what, but there there was just no real way for this show to to find the kind of breakout audience that I think it it probably deserved and as a result, Netflix renewed it but renewed it for a second and final season and the The six episode second season really does try to reach something of a conclusion, and I think it's a little bit maybe strained in that because. The entire purpose of the series, which was created by Mae Martin and Joe Hampson, is to focus on this very, very messy core relationship between the characters played by Mae Martin and by uh, Charlotte Ritchie, who are very much in love, but also extremely toxic for each other. And the idea that there's going to be a neat conclusion to this love story is not really all that realistic, and the creators somewhat try to steer it to a conclusive point, not necessarily perfectly, but it is still a show that is tartly funny. I think the second season is probably funnier than the first. It's also very dark, because the characters are very, very messed up. I think that May Martin was a real discovery uh, last season. They're primarily a writer and a stand-up, and... So this is just a a kind of a first time lead acting performance. And uh, they're funny and they're emotional and just really extremely talented. I I, I can't wait to see what Mae Martin does next. Uh, Charlotte Ritchie is also extremely funny. And this season, I think she's much more effectively dramatic than the first season. You know, in a different world, maybe Netflix would have been able to promote better that the series co-stars Lisa Kudrow as as May's mother and that she's really, really great in it. And she's also in it a lot more this season um, and is just such a, a pleasure to watch. So, yeah, th- there are a lot of reasons to like this show and to watch it in in our crowded TV landscape. One of the best reasons is it's only 12 episodes total. They're all a half hour apiece. It's a pretty easy binge, so I I really like that. I also, you you just heard our interview with Nita Manzur about We Are Lady Parts, and I I think that it's just a a totally charming series. Uh, If if Feel Good is maybe sometimes a little darker and more twisted than would make it necessarily a feel good show, We Are Lady Parts is absolutely a feel good show. It is it is genuinely funny. The music from the all female, all Muslim, uh, punk band is really catchy. Some of the, the song titles and songs themselves are, are hilarious. And it's, it's a cast of people who you probably haven't seen before, but it's a, it's a great cast. Lots of people who I imagine you'll be seeing in the future. And, uh, I think that, that Nita Mansour has a very, very fresh voice. And I think that we will be, I think we will be hearing a lot more from her. And so I'm glad we just had that conversation with her. And hopefully that will have introduced her to two audiences. I know you're not a critic, Leslie, but you like this one,
0: right? It was super fun. I still have two more episodes to go, but I absolutely love the show. It's super fresh, feels different, and feels incredibly relatable. And it's just funny and and smart and clever. And you know, if you liked Girls 5 Eva, this kind of does that in a little bit of a different way. But yeah, I'm yeah, renew the show. It's a really I mean renew that and Girls Five Eva while you're at it, Peacock.
1: <laughs> I don't think I don't think probably we need to worry about either one of them. That's just my guess.
0: I, they better not. Yeah, both are great.
1: But we but we are Lady Parts is actually really effectively serialized. Like I I wanted to keep watching episode to episode because I wanted to see how the complications were going to sort themselves out. So uh so that's another winner. Um over on Netflix, I really enjoyed. Uh, sweet tooth which is based on a comic by jeff lemire it's adapted by jim mickle who did a very very good job of adapting the happen leonard series for sundance tv it's another Uh, one of your favorites uh, yeah a show that i really like a show that's just a really good way of adapting a book you know the sometimes sometimes you get a showrunner who has a good sense of the sensibility and the sensibility of happen leonard couldn't be more different from the sensibility that's on display here in sweet tooth and yet jim mickle is is all over both so very good on him um it's very whimsical very magical it's it's a fairy tale it's a fairy tale about a about the world in the aftermath of a global pandemic so ha, ha um, see what you did there netflix uh, well you know you kind of get get quote-unquote lucky, um, in the same way that FX is going to have to see what our appetite is for post-global pandemic in Why the Last Man. That's just, uh, that's how these things go. Uh, but it's primarily the story of a young boy who is half boy and half deer, uh, because there was a, a series of births involving hybrid children. And he's been raised in the wilderness of Yellowstone by his father, who's played by Will Forte, who's excellent here. And he goes in search of his mother and he travels across the wilderness, played rather beautifully by settings in New Zealand. Uh, and it's, it's just a big, heartfelt, sometimes funny, sometimes really exciting drama, lots of very good performances, uh, Christian Convery, who plays the young deer boy, is very good. Uh, Nonzo Anosi, who some people will know from, uh, Game of Thrones and whatnot, uh, plays his sort of guardian on the road. Stefania Levy Owen, who some people will know from Dorota from the Carrie Diaries, not Dorota, Dorota's on, uh, on Gossip Girl, darn it. Uh, anyway, as Carrie's <laughs> sister from the, yeah, you know, they're all, they're all names. Uh, anyway, she was Carrie's sister on the Carrie Diaries. Anyway, very good. Um, just, just good solid cast across the board. And it's the kind of show that at any point could fall apart under the, the pressure of its tone. And it, it doesn't. So I, I really enjoyed that one. And also the place that it takes the show to by the end of the eighth episode had me very much looking forward to more. So I hope that this is one that. Netflix likes uh, because I would like to see more of it. Um, Now, when I mentioned that Jim Mickle has a tremendous sense of how he wants to be adapting Sweet Tooth, I I am not convinced that the adapter of Lisey's story has the best idea of how to be adapting the 2006 Stephen King novel, with the problem there being that the adapter of Lisey's story is Stephen King.
0: Um, yeah, he wrote every <laughs> single episode of this show, Dan. <laughs>
1: he did indeed. And, you know, on the positive side, as I said in my review, it feels Stephen Kingy. There is no question about that, that this is probably as pure a distillation of Stephen King's tone and themes as you could get in a TV series. But just because you can adapt something all yourself doesn't mean that the things that work on the page work on the screen. And there are a lot of things that I feel as if someone with a different upbringing in television and film would have been able to, uh, let's say change, let's just say change, adapt, adjust, however you want to put it. The second half becomes wildly silly at times and i have a hard time imagining many people are going to be fully enthralled enough to stick with it and this is despite the fact that it has one of the great casts you could possibly find in a tv show so the lead is uh lead roles played by julianne moore who plays the widow of a novelist who is played by clive owen Uh, Julianne Moore's character's sisters are played by Joan Allen and Jennifer Jason Leigh. You have other roles played by Dane DeHaan, Ron Cephas Jones. uh, Sung Kang from the Fast and Furious series is technically a cast regular, but gee whiz, he's not used particularly well here. Um, So... So don't think you want to watch this because you like him. Uh, This is not, this show is not justice for Han. Um, Yeah, it's, there are things about it that work. It was directed by Pablo Lorraine entirely. And he directed, of course, the, the Jackie O movie that uh, Natalie Portman did. And he has a very good sense of how to convey emotion on film. And there are some things, especially in the fourth, first four episodes that he does very very well the series is also shot by darius kanji who is one of the all-time great directors of photography so every frame looks gorgeous it just it just really falls apart in the second half they're the sort of a an interplay between a, a fictional magical world uh called booyah moon which is a ridiculous thing to have people saying over and over again. It it's just doesn't work, a- and just the interplay of the real world and the fantasy world just doesn't come together, unfortunately. Uh, but th- but you know there there are things here that are worth watching. But if I were to talk about the four shows premiering this late week into the weekend, it is definitely the least successful of them. I would definitely say watch Sweet Tooth. You'll know pretty early on if you buy its whimsical vibe. If you don't, life goes on. Um, I really love Feel Good. It's also a little tart and, and, you know, messed up in a good way. Maybe you're not in the mood. So if you're really in the mood for something uplifting and, and happy and fun, definitely We Are Lady Parts is, uh, is where you should look.
0: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Well, my friend, this feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week with a showrunner from Loki, the third Marvel series coming to Disney+. Plus.
1: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us if you really like us. Write a little review thing. It helps with our placement and all of the various search engines. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you. Let us know what works, what doesn't work. What you'd like us to talk about in the future. But if you have specific questions for mailbag segments, you can always email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan.